At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to another bonus episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where we bring you conversations with experts in fields relating to urban farming and dive a little deeper into some of our important issues of our times. Growing plants that thrive in your yard is a lot easier than you think. It starts with saving your own seeds and letting them remember what they already learned. Just text SEEDS to 33444 or visit IWantToSaveSeeds.com and you'll receive our free webinar about why seeds matter, why saving them is easy, and how to save your own. Today, we're chatting with our seed expert, Bill McDormand, as he shares some seed wisdom and discusses thoughts and concerns that might occupy the minds of those of us who are saving seeds. Welcome, Bill. Hello, hello. Thanks for I'm being ready here. To go. <laughs> All right, I love it. That's even alliteration. So we've got a lot, as usual. We've got a lot to talk about. Thanks, Belle. I see you on on the call. She always puts together great notes for us. This first piece is interesting. It says Bill recently attended a crop wild relative gathering in Tucson to celebrate the release of a new volume set, North American Crop Wild Relatives, co-written by Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance board member. Colin Curry. He says the three-day event was eye-opening and inspiring with a call to action uh, to bring this important topic to consciousness of the seed and plant world. Without our crop wild relatives, our modern-day cultivars may not have the genetic diversity they need to survive. That's interesting. So I guess tonight we're going to talk about the challenges as outlined by the botanists academicians, I don't know how to say that word, Bell, educators and others who came from around the country to immerse in this exciting topic. And then we're going to talk about the uh, seed summit you guys got coming up. But let's let's start with this whole wild relative gathering in Tucson. Tell me about that. Well, you know, most people don't know where their food comes from, let alone where their seeds come from. But if you double-click on that a little bit and you start to dig into it the way we do in our seed schools, what you quickly realize is that all of the foods that we eat that are plant-based and animal-based in large part, too, you could probably argue, but I know most about the plant-based foods, all of those started out as wild plants. And if you uh, learn what the relative, the wild crop relative is of your favorite plant foods, and, and many of them you can still find growing in the wild, you wouldn't recognize them in large part in many times. And many of them would 
look or taste inedible to you. And that's a real tribute to just how long human beings have been slowly moving by selecting and saving their own seeds, you know, these incredible gifts to us and moving them into what we like to eat in our modern food diets. And so, you know, as, as human populations expanded and, and development has taken place in its sensitive areas, especially all over the planet, the areas that hold the few remaining wild places where these wild plants originally came from in many places are now threatened. And so in a sense, we're on the verge of undermining the foundation to our whole food system. And I, you know, I get to the uneducated person might say, uneducated about this might say, well, well, you know, we have our food crops and we've got all our seeds now and we've got all these seeds and seed banks. So why do we need the wild ones? Well, there's a really important reason why we need the wild ones. They oftentimes hold the key to the futures, the future viability of our crops. So let me just give you some examples. There are numerous times where our modern crops have been threatened by a new disease. And this is happening right now with sugar beets. And potatoes maybe as well? Potatoes? Um, well, you know, it's inevitable that every crop, especially those we get up to an industrial level, are eventually going to be t attacked. As mm -hmm. uh, uh, Jack Koplenberg from the University of Madison, Wisconsin, points out, he said, it's big food, <laughs> you know. <laughs> if there's any kind of fungus or bug or whatever around and it sees millions of acres of something, it just goes, wow, big food. So the only defense we have for these kinds of things is our wild crop relatives because lots of times they have natural resistance to these diseases. So as what's happening with sugar beets, and this is a very important crop, especially in southern Idaho where I grew up, they have um, geneticists and plant breeders now sifting through wild sugar beet plants, looking for genes that will be resistant to this new disease. And what they'll do then is cross them in using traditional plant breeding techniques that are aided now by being able DNA markers and being able to sequence DNA so they can look at what's going on. But then they'll use regular plant breeding techniques to bring those genes into their commercial crop. And mm -hmm. therefore, it can grow even though, you know, it uh, was um, being threatened by a disease. And so it comes down to some simple seventh grade stuff. The more diversity you have, the more resilient your ecosystem is going to be, especially our food, our industrial food producing ecosystem. Yeah. And that diversity, the most of it that we have still rests probably in our, the wild crop relatives of our major crops. And so that's why a group of people came together in Tucson a week ago in, uh, from institutions all over the place. I think they came from three different continents to talk about how to uh, raise world awareness and get even our institutions and our governments involved so that we can save these things, even though most people don't know about them and don't know they're there and don't even understand why they're important. And so it was kind of, a, it was a very interesting gathering. Wow. So I, you know what? I don't even know the questions to ask about this. Well, if, where if do peppers come from? Where do peppers <laughs> come from? Well, they come from a seed that I planted that I got at the, Home Depot. 
Okay. Well, right. what is the wild plant that we started with to produce all the peppers, all the capsicum anums? Oh. It turns out that there's five different species of a genus called capsicum that provide what uh, humans call chilies or, or peppers around the world. But the vast majority of those come from one species, capsicum anum. And it turns out that the wild crop relative for that is native to Arizona and oh. uh, northern Mexico. Mm-hmm. And it's called, uh, lovingly called, um, the common name now is uh, chiltepine. Oh. And so the last remaining chiltepines are th- being threatened by development. There happens to be a biopreserve, a, a place set aside for the Forest Service, uh-huh. as it was actually designated as the world's first biopreserve for wild crop relatives. That was something that Dr. Gary Nabhan at the University of Arizona helped get passed. It was an agreement that was reached yeah. that's now expired, and they're trying to get that renewed. But anyway, it's in southern Idaho, or uh, excuse me, Arizona, just outside of Tubac for those that are interested. So we've got one of these incredibly important wild crop relatives, you know, that you can go and see in the wild here. And also, you know, I've got some growing in my yard. I love the plant. It's a perennial plant that has little teeny round peppers that are extremely hot. Yeah. So being a layperson, what question would I ask you about the importance of this? Well, you know, I I hope that I've done somewhat of a job explaining the importance. Everybody should be aware that if you're if you're an eater, you should be involved. We're at a breaking point in so many of our ecological systems that this is another one we should pay attention to that directly affects us. I mean, biodiversity loss is one is becoming one of the most searched concepts on Google. I just had a man from Silicon Valley tell me that the other day, that people are genuinely concerned about the loss of biodiversity because it means it will threaten so many of our systems. Well, if a subset of that would be the biodiversity that forms the foundation of our food system. Mm. And those are our wild crop relatives. We need that biodiversity to prop up the long-term a sustainability of our food system. And so that that would be what um, people should come to understand as to why it's important. You know, I think you're you're hearing some people involved in this now saying that, you know, a chiltepine or a wild sugar beet, as I was talking about before, in some areas of the world is as threatened with extinction as a panda. Or a baquita, the little porpoise down in the Sea of Cortez that there's only 32 of left. And so, you know, our hearts go out. We've got campaigns and awareness is happening around the mammals. But there's all sorts of other levels of this. And and maybe it's time that we start um, thinking about the ones that affect our food system directly. You know, the same thing's happening with banana. You know, 99% of all the bananas sold commercially in the world are all exactly the same variety. And those are starting to be attacked. And so we have to go to other uh, varieties and species of banana, you know, that have more diversity to look for resistance that can help save our Cavendish. And if we don't find it, we'll have to just end up eating, you know, and commercializing one of those other varieties. But this is the kind of thing that is facing us as modern creatures. Well, that's very interesting. I had somebody on my podcast, I'm looking them up right now, talking about the banana um, and the problem. Ooh. 
episode number 327, Robert Reeder on protecting banana crops. And so this is exactly what he was talking about. Is uh, yeah. that we have basically we have made all of the bananas on the planet one genetic duplicate. And genetic exactly. Duplicate. So if there's a dis- disease that comes along, it could take all the bananas out, literally. And well, I, when when a disease comes along, oh, yeah. and it's come along, it just hasn't hit Central and South America yet. Right, that was what, that, my memory. So this was from, uh, oh, Jan, this was a year ago. <laughs> That's why I'm having trouble remembering it. But it's episode 327 at the Urban Farm Pod, uh, UrbanFarmPodcast.com. A uh, guy's name is Robert Reeder if you want to listen up on that. But Boy, what, I do. That, what challenge are they having with sugar beets? Well, I, you know, we went to the um, National Sugar Beet Lab in Kimberly, Idaho with one of our seed schools. And what was really fun about it and why we went is the, uh, the lab techs there, one of the breeders allowed us to sequence DNA while we were there and look at the results. It was really interesting. Yeah. And so it was really fun. You know, what we've got modern science now that lets us look in and look at genes. And so this little lab was trying to save the sugar beet crop is how he explained it and that there were actually two diseases that had gotten into sugar beets on other continents that they were afraid were coming into southern Idaho. And, and it's a million acres. You oh, know, yeah. I mean, it's a huge and they're all exactly the same variety. And so they were doing tests to try to find sugar beet. A new, they wanted to develop a new sugar beet variety that was resistant to mm-hmm. these two diseases before it struck and t- took out large parts of the crop. And they weren't sure they were going to do it. It was really a, an interesting thing. And so, you know, that's I'm, I, I speak of this as uh, an example because I have personal experience with it. Right. I mean, it would be horrible. To the industry, you know, to the agriculture in southern Idaho if they lost the sugar beet. But, you know, citrus is under the same, you yep. know, I read in the New York Times there was an article about how we may lose citrus because, again, they're all clones. Yeah. All the oranges, are, you know, the most successful tangerines, oranges, lemons, and grapefruits are all exactly the same varieties. And they're now being attacked. And so how do we find something disease resistant? Well, they thought maybe for a while, and this was the irony of the article, is that we were going to have to genetically modify oranges Mm -hmm. in order to save the crop. And this was a horrifying prospect for Tropicana, the largest buyer of oranges for orange juice in the United States, because they're the wholesome ma and pa breakfast food for every child in America. And they just didn't think... The idea of genetically modified orange juice for breakfast was going to sell very well. On the other hand, they may, they were going to have to maybe give up their best crop, right? Oranges, if it gets, if the disease spreads enough. And so they were trying to stay ahead of the game. Well, it turns out that a couple, two trees, old, old, old in an abandoned orchard, grapefruit trees, actually, it's, if I remember, correctly, Mm -hmm. they found had a natural resistance to this disease. Somebody just happened. I don't know the story behind them. But agriculture's the history of agriculture is filled with stories like this, how one plant can save a whole industry. And now that they found the genetics for the resistance, they're working on bringing it into a new, whole new strain of modern oranges that would be resistant 
to the disease. And so you can kind of see how this goes. And so that's what they're trying to do for bananas, you know. It's going to be coffee is under pressure. And then if you really, if you were wanted to be nefarious, if your goal was to bring down the industrial food system, what one easy thing you could do, it wouldn't be easy, but you would mess up the weather. You would make it rain when it didn't normally rain. You'd make it hot when it wasn't normally hot. Because what that does is unleash all sorts of new pathogens and diseases oh, yeah. at different times that those plants have never seen before. And guess what global climate change is doing? I mean, those sorts of things are going through the roof. Yeah. So we're, we've had a relatively benign period, one could argue, and I'm sure there are scientists would show me there are places where this isn't true. But we may have yet to look into real effects of climate change, and it may just be the the climate weirdness that we're all getting used to explain, you know, experiencing now, of it just happening at weird times of the year, 75 degrees here in Cornville, Arizona in December. And, you know, having it really cold and rainy in the middle of the summer. So, mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and we're already seeing that with Lyme disease. Apparently, uh, the, they're calling it the first pandemic of global warming, yes. Lyme disease. And the reason I know this is because both Heidi and I have Lyme. And, yes. Uh, you know, the CDC expects 300,000 new cases a year of Lyme, and it's not on anybody's radar. No. And it's the same idea. You're exactly. We've unleashed new diseases. We have a relatively, you know, large crop, monocrop of humans for it to attack. And here it comes. Wow. I mean, it's really, you know, again, I just remember a lot of this from eighth grade biology class. I mean, the picture's been pretty clear. I don't know why or how we strayed so far from just basic science around this stuff. Mm-hmm. But it, it's absolutely necessary that we all wake up and we all get involved in some way. So as a home gardener, you can grow. Find and grow some wild crop relatives. You know, in the United States, those are things as easy as uh, sunflowers. You know, wild sunflowers. That's one of our crops. There's wild strawberries we could grow. Um, in Arizona, we've got agaves, you know, that are wild, that have contributed to the human food and alcohol consumption, of course. Yeah, exactly. You know, where all the tequila Tequila, baby. Yeah. You know, they're finding that what they thought were a lot of wild agaves are actually been cultivated for thousands of years, probably to drink. Oh, I remember hearing something about this sometime in the last year. Right. There's five, five new categorized species of agave because of these discoverings around archaeological digs in Arizona. You know, we live real near Tuzigut, and they found two right there. And in fact, I think they call one of them Agave uh, Verde, Verde, after the Verde River. Here. Uh-huh. So, yeah, it's it's an exciting time. So get involved. Learn the wild crop relatives. You know, one of the things you've heard me say on uh, here, and we teach in our seed school, is that generally when you go back and find older varieties, the land races of your favorite, say, tomato or broccoli or whatever you're growing, you'll get more natural diversity within that. But follow yeah. that all the way back and find out the wild plant that it came from and grow some of those. You know, we have teosinte, and that's available now, which is the wild crop relative of all corn. They just rediscovered Solanum jamesii, which is a wild potato that was cultivated oh, here in the southwest a thousand years ago. I remember that. That was an amazing story. 
Yeah. So, you know, instead of, you know, looking at this as, oh, no, there's another thing I've got to pay attention to that's going wrong with the world, flip uh-huh. it maybe and see this as a whole new way to double click on your life and discover a whole new adventure underneath it. And who knows what kinds of color, shapes, flavors, sizes of things are ahead of you in your life that would be that you could help steward and bring back in to, you know, our modern food diet that have more resistance mm-hmm. to the things that we face. You know, it could be really fun. So that's how I'm I'm looking at this and that's why I went to the North American Crop Wild Relatives <laughs> a rollout. That's the name of the book that was just published. It was uh one of the authors is Colin Corey. That's K H O U R Y. Colin works at the National Seed Storage Laboratory. He's a part-time worker there. He also works for the Center for Tropical Agriculture in uh, Bolivia, I believe. And um, he's been working. He's one of the uh, world's foremost experts now on wild crop relatives. And he's a new member of the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance Board of Directors. And so I'm really looking forward to spending time with him and getting to know him and seeing how we can help. You know, we got... You know, Greg, I was just looking. We have over 3,800 people in our network now. I was just looking at some of the numbers. 88 seed teachers have signed up in our directory. And How so many? if people go to our website, they can 88 wow. seed teachers. We've got 82 seed libraries, 46 seed companies. And you can go and pull up a map and see where the dots are and click on it and find any of those things near you. And then one of the ideas, since we're just like this group of people, we thought, wow, let's get try to get everybody together every other year. You know, we can't. It's too much energy every year. And it's just about breaking the back. Let me stop you. Before we go there, um, what is RMSA for those uh, people that don't know? Oh, RMSA, Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance. Yeah, I was uh, assuming that people understood Thank you. Yeah, no, that's okay. Get, that's okay. So, what do you what do you do at Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance? Well, uh, now we're working on wild crop relatives, <laughs> 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 among other things. It's it's an alliance. It's a network of people that have come together mm-hmm. to try to assure an abundant supply of seeds for our region, our bioregion, the Rocky Mountains. And make sure that it has the diversity in the seeds it needs as we go forward into the future that are from the Rocky Mountain West. In other words, if we, if, as we think about the world, if we really want it to be resilient and sustainable, um, we're going to need our own seeds Mm -hmm. because in that um, comes the system that allows those seeds to continually adapt to the new um, conditions and challenges that we're all going to face. So it all fits right back down into a neat package and we don't see this as a utopian dream this is actually what we had in every region in the country if you just go back a couple of generations every farmer and every gardener saved their own seeds and they shared them and now we have uh, computer networks and directories like the ones i was describing that allow us to quickly network and share information and seeds with each other and so that in a sense is what the rocky mountain seed alliance is about Cool. Well, and, you know, we stumbled across a couple of concepts there that I kind of want to dig into deeper. And I have a story here at the Urban Farm. Um, I have okay. 
And, and I want to kind of touch on this term that not a lot of people necessarily know. I learned it the first time about 20 years ago when I was at, getting my undergraduate degree at Arizona State University. It's called land race. So unbeknownst to me, I was harvesting these cow peas that grow wild in my yard. They've been, you know, growing wilds for 10 or 15 years here. And I packaged some of them for the Great American Seed Up that we do every year last year. And you said to me, oh, Greg, those are a land race. <laughs> Can you tell everybody yeah. what that is? Well, yeah, it's a term as you get into seed saving, and it's becoming more more and more used, I think. And that's a good thing, I think. Oh, yeah. Land races are, are probably the best gifts we have from our ancestors. And as I said, this can be as late as two generations ago in some ways. Some of it's still continuing. It's the best gifts we have in this long march from wild plants to our modern food crops. And as, as people all over the planet grew and saved seeds from the things they liked most, where they were, for whatever reason they liked them, whether it was religious or cultural or their flavor or whatever, terroir, um, they changed things. And those varieties that were largely place-based, they were attached to the land, and I think that's where that part of the term comes from, yep. and use race in the term that we use it as humans. We use it to humans to, to describe slightly different shades of humans right, land race, you kind of get an idea of what the, the word means. And so these are crop varieties, usually that have lots of diversity still in them, but are, are largely adapted to one place or another for really good reasons. And so one of the things we try to teach in our seed schools at the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance is to, um, is to make sure that everyone, not only when you share seeds, you, you get them or you share some of yours, you make sure a story goes with it mm. so that we can understand some of the important information oh, about yeah. these land races. Yeah. And so as we go forward, they, they, they actually may hold the key in many areas for many of us to, to continue ah. our food system on because they have so much diversity still in them. And uh, they're easy for us once you find the ones that were available in your region. That it's an e it's a nice place to start your own seed saving adventure. Yeah. So let me finish the story then about my cow peas. They originally, I don't know, ten years ago or so, maybe fifteen years ago, they came from uh, Native Seed Search down in Tucson. They're the Rio Red cow pea from them, and I bought one packet and planted it here, and they grow back every year just like clockwork. And I usually harvest somewhere around three to five pounds of them every year. They're nitrogen fixers, so they're pulling nitrogen out of the soil and nitrogen out of the air so that when they die back at the end of, well, really at the beginning of winter, when they die back, I just compost those into the basins where they started. And, you know, I'm adding nitrogen that's available for the other plants. But here's the big story. I, I came to understand this, this year that we need to shade our ground around our trees and our crops in the desert because it just gets so dang hot. On August 15th in my front yard, it was 140 degrees at ground level. That's oh enough my God. to pretty much cook everything. Underneath the cow peas that were growing underneath my Katie apricot in the front yard, it was 89 uh -huh. It was 89 degrees. Oh, my gosh. So um, for those, 
for those of you that don't know it, I run a fruit tree education program here where we also sell fruit trees. And people, people that live in the Arizona area can come and purchase fruit trees from me. You know what I've been giving away? Hundreds of packets what? of for people to plant. Oh, cuppies. Trees. Yes. Yes. And so it's I, fixing nitrogen. And it's yes. keeping things cool. Yes. So I've I've probably well I ordered 500 you know the Great American Seed Up cards for cowpeas uh-huh. and I've been stuffing packets with about 10 seeds each. I tell people you just need one seed under need, under each tree and that'll save the ground underneath the tree. And then once you do that, they'll come back year after year after year. So there's the story. Oh my, Isn't that great? Oh my gosh, a gi- a guild. Yeah. You've created a new guild, as they call it, in permaculture. I love it. Yeah, exactly. So now all of a sudden I'll have, you know, at the end of this season, I'll have four or 500 people out there that have planted cow peas in their yard underneath their fruit trees that now all of a sudden, you know, I had one plant that started 10 years ago, and now I get 30 plants and harvest, you know, what, four pounds of seeds, and I've spread that seed all over town. Oh, my gosh. What a great story. Yeah. And I know people from Tucson have been coming up to get the seeds as well and the, you know, our trees. So that's the impact. Well, that's, well, and so, you know, this is again to go back. I know you've got a great network of people down there that you've been working on and we're working on building new ones in the Rocky Mountain West. That should be the, what we do, you know, education and network. That's, I mean, that's all we really can do. And, and I just want to say one more thing about the wild crop relatives is that, you know, we were uh, one of the people, persons that came was the woman who's actually in charge, Greg, of the collection of the seeds at the National Seed Storage Laboratory. This is wow. the largest seed bank on, in North America. Wow. And that's her job. She's in charge of the collection. And guess what? She's out of work. It's closed. Why? No, that's part of the government. The government shut down. Oh, government shut down. Got it. Government shut down. Mm-hmm. We've gone 32 days. You <laughs> wow. know? It's... Sh- so here's where we put all our seeds, you know. And, and so that's just one of the stories that came out of this. The other is that I got to see a talk by the dean of the School of Agriculture at the University of Arizona. Uh-huh. And they they don't have uh, – 96% of the research that's done in agriculture at the University of Arizona um, comes in the form of grants from mm-hmm. either uh, directly from corporations. He claims that biotech corporations is a real small part of it, mm-hmm. but then foundations like the Gates Foundation, but it's all restricted. In other words, they don't just give them money to do long-term research or to save seeds or to create land races or to think about this disease vector, mm-hmm. you know, in uh, for small crops. It's all about, you know, creating something that industry can use or can right. be used on a large scale, an industrial scale. So I guess my takeaway was I was just around people who, uh, the the great institutions that we have in agriculture, nobody's coming to do this work to make sure that there's enough diversity everywhere, that there's people saving seeds and adapting them to where they are to assure their own supply where they are. That, it's just not being done and nobody's helping. And so I, I came, I came out of there with renewed, you know, dedication to helping build these networks the yeah. way that we've been working on this because that's really I'm I'm sure there are others that have thought oh you guys are so you know it's a wonderful idea to save your own seeds and it's kind of cute but it'll never have a large scale impact you'll never feed 9 billion people 
Well, I guess what I'm thinking now is that we're the only people really working on the real solution Yeah. That for the real problems that we face. And even though it seems small at this point, it's real. And it right. has so much importance that we've got to stay focused on it. I guess that's how I feel this week. So, yeah. Yeah. So we have a really exciting summit coming up in February, February 22nd and 23rd, 2019. That's the... Uh, Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance Reunion of the Radicals Mountain West Seed Summit. Tell us about it. Well, that is, so we've been talking about building a network. In the end, and this is something I, that I deeply believe, networks of people are going to come down to real, the, the durable ones, mm-hmm. the ones that make a difference in the long run, will be made up of real human relationships, people that know each other and trust each other. That's what we really need, is a network of people that know each other and trust each other to do this kind of work long term and and pass it on to our kids and they get that when they, you know, when they pass it on. And so once every other year, we try to bring everybody together. At least we have an open invitation for everybody in our network to come and meet and greet each other and to share seeds and to share those stories and to get up and running. And it's really an incredibly powerful and exciting, you know, two days. Actually, we we have a, a field trip planned again on the day before the summit, which takes place on. I gotta. I'm gonna make sure that I don't mess up my days here. Uh, February. the The main summit is February 22nd and 23rd, mm-hmm. and on the 21st we have a field trip. The summit's taking place in Santa Fe, New Mexico, at the Institute of American Indian Arts. It's a beautiful campus. And will give us lots of space and sacred space to to gather and to have our workshops. And we have some really exciting speakers. And then on Friday, the day before it starts, we are, excuse me, on Thursday, the 21st, we're taking a field trip uh, north of Santa Fe to um, several places, including the Tusuke Pueblo and the seed bank there that's run by wow. NAPO. Mm-hmm. And so... And we'll have two busloads of people, and we'll have a, a box lunch that day. It's really fun. We'll go to Los Luceros, which is an old historical experiment station, which is doing grain trials for us. There's a number of things going on. So you can get some real hands-on and see what's going on there. The reason we have the summit there in the, the southern part of the Rocky Mountains is that the agriculture there goes back, you know, directly thousands of years. And the remnants, you know, especially the Pueblo peoples there that are still there, carry on those traditions and are rediscovering them. And they're some of our, my greatest teachers. And so it's just really fun to ground all the rest of us in the Mountain West that grew up in mining towns or ski towns or wherever, university towns, you know, with this real deeper sense of the responsibility and the beauty in seed saving and what we're doing. And so... It's going to be really fun. So I got a couple of questions here, actually a statement from Bell. Bell said, did we mention uh, that Bill is with the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance? <laughs> no, Greg did. <laughs> um, Bill didn't. Bill, yeah. You, Bill the, the, what is your official the title? Director. I'm the director. Perfect. I try, I'm the one who stays out of the way of our other three employees. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Tries to. And then I've got a uh, question from Judith. I'm just going to read it. I haven't looked at it yet. Where do we go to find seed for wild crop relatives of grains? Uh Uh-oh. I bet you know the answer to that one. Does the Department of Ag make efforts to have more people grow out the wild relatives? (laughs) Well, okay, I can answer questions, but go. Well, I think it's a great question. That was why the conference 
in Tucson took place was to uh, to raise awareness and put an increased focus on this. Mm-hmm. Right now, the government is not giving away any seats. As I said, it's shut down. You know, so for 32 days, nobody has gotten any seats out of the National Seed Storage Laboratory or the or the Grain Lab in Aberdeen, Idaho. Mm-hmm. Um, they do have a number of what I would call land race selections from the wild crop relatives. But I have, you know, that's a really great question. I have yet to see. I've got a picture now that we show in seed school of a field in eastern Turkey. And I can't um, pronounce the name of the town that it's near where wild einkorn is growing. In the field is the wild goat grass that crossed with wild einkorn that produced the first emmer. Mm-hmm. And so you can see the whole history and the birth of wheat in this field <laughs> in eastern Turkey, and it's still alive and it's still there. And so I think one of the things that Dr. Nabin and Colin, Dr. Curry would say is that not only do we need to get gardeners you know, sourcing seeds, say, from our national laboratories and places, but we need to preserve those wild fields just the way they are so that they can stay alive and provide, you know, genetics for us and actual seeds as we go forward. So that's a good question. I'm trying to think, you know, Native Seed Search always was a source for Teosinte, which is the wild crop relative of corn. They have tepary beans, wild tepary beans there. They have a panic grass seeds, so that would be those are all could be sourced there. I've been trying. If anyone out there uh, wants to keep asking and let me know if they're successful, I've been looking for a source for the the wild potato here from the southwest, the Solanum jamesii. That would be a really wonderful so, thing to uh, pass around in our circles. Yeah, Judith says, where do we go to find wild crop relatives of grains? You should mention your grain project. Well, we do have, if you want, you know, I'm I'm trying to think through the question here while I'm talking is, you know, rye is really been unchanged for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. It's its own wild crop relative almost. I mean, it's been selected to have larger seeds, but it's, a, and what does the original old wild rye look like? I've never seen some and never heard of it. Um, next time I see Bridget Mainz, who is at Oregon State University postdoc working on barley breeding, naked barleys. I'm going to ask her about barley wild crop relatives. And so I don't know of any source for those. But if you want to get ancient grains, the first ones that are the ones that we pass around and still grow that go furthest back toward the wild crop relatives, then you can join the Rocky Mountain Heritage Grain Trials Program that we have. And you can get to that on our website at RockyMountainSeeds.org. And we now have 285 grains available for people to try and trial for us. And so what we want you to do is grow them out, see if they work. If they work, save some seeds and um, send us twice as much back as we sent you originally. And then we can send those seeds out to other people. And what we're trying to do is build a network. I think there's over 90 people in that network now that are helping us increase these older varieties uh, of things that work, you know, yeah. eyes on. We, you know, we will know where they work and increase the poundage up. The idea is to get up to, you know, 20, 50, 100 pound bags so that we can get farmers actually trying them in the fields at a larger scale to see if they'll actually work economically. So we love gardeners. If you can only grow one 
einkorn plant in a pot, you know, on your deck, you can help us. You plant one seed, you might get 75, you know, that helps. And we can combine those seeds with others we get from other people and then pass those out to other folks. And so Leanne Hill is on our staff and is in charge of that program. She's just doing a fabulous job. She's starting to get a sense now of who's growing what and where. And that that kind of knowledge hasn't been around for a while in our region. You know, we used to have all these grains growing in the Rocky Mountain West. They were all brought here by immigrants when we first settled these lands. And they, by and large, have uh, been replaced by a handful of modern yeah. varieties. And uh, they're, they're all that same story. It's like the bananas. They're all the same. And so... Right. So uh, well, now, we're trying wanna, to reach back and find the Yeah, go ahead. I want to jump in and just talk about a story that you are personally involved with, Sonoran White Wheat, because that started out as a small amount that has expanded greatly now. Tell us yeah. a little bit about that. We've got tons. For all of those you don't believe that a handful of seed savers <laughs> can make a difference, just remember that scaling up um, seeds, and especially grains, is exponential. You know, I'm trying to get my, uh, it's it's widely variable, but let me give you a scenario. You can take one, as I said, one einkorn seed and scale it up to 75 or 80 seeds the first year. You can plant those and get a pound the next year. And you can plant that pound, and depending on the grain and how good it is, you can get between 50 and 100 pounds the next year. And so that's basically what we did with a handful of Sonoran white wheat, white Sonora, that was found in southern Arizona. It had almost completely disappeared. It was uh, had been in Arizona for 400 years by then, almost. It was brought by the first Catholic missionaries that came into Arizona because this was the wafer wheat. This mm-hmm. was the body of Christ that they planted at every mission. So if you if you know southern Arizona, it's, you know, Tubac, Tumacacri, San Javier. You know, they built a mission up the Santa Cruz River every 25 to 50 miles or so. And everywhere they built a mission, they planted this wheat. And the wheat got into production by the uh, uh, indigenous peoples that were there, mm-hmm. what we now call the Pima, the Gila, the Ta'ana Aram. And they grew it into a huge agriculture, huge, using... Hohokam canals in some cases, growing it on monsoon rains and saving the seeds and selecting it created a hugely abundant agriculture that had so much grain it fed both sides of the Civil War during the late part of the war. I mean, it was incredible. And, and um, that agriculture... And you found a cup of them and turned it into uh, millions of yeah, pounds. Yeah, that's... The, well, you know, by the time I left Native Seed Search... At director, uh, I got a call saying there were 1,100 acres wow. under production. I don't know how many there are now. It is here, and it's around. And I just saw there's a wonderful operation that was part of our original grow-out that was kind of corollary to it uh, that we got. We did on a Western SARE grant at Native Seed Search, and it's the operation is now called um, Grain R&D. And you can look that up. They have a Facebook page. They're in Queen Creek, Arizona. And they may be the largest growers, but they, Craig, they've got the most beautiful picture of a glass of beer that is a white Sonoran beer that's being brewed in Arizona from their white Sonora wheat. And so, you know, it's, and I know Don Guerra, especially in Tucson at Barrio Bread, is baking with it. 
Uh-huh. You know, we're starting to bring back what we call our local green economy. It's what we used to have. And for those of you that are interested in long-term food uh, sustainability uh, and regional food production, this is a great story. Yeah, and we're going to wrap with that. So let's just say a little bit about Seed School and Seed School Online. You know, I, the only thing I'd say, I will let you talk about it too. The only thing I would say is to tie it into what we've been talking about before. If we're going to have a, a, a network of people that is large enough and uh, knows enough about what to do to actually bring back, you know, the fabric, this foundation uh-huh. underneath our, our, our food system. I mean, we're starting to see a local food system. That's great. But yep. no seeds yet. You know, if we're really going to do that, we need more people. And that's where Seed School comes in. You know, we try to spend the majority of the energy at the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance in educating. And so we've got six-day programs, got one-day program. And then after doing that for a number of years and doing that over and over and over again, we distilled it down into Seed School online program that you – it's a series of webinars, seven, I believe, that you can download Mm -hmm. at your leisure – And you get the best of the best. I mean, this whole program was developed out of more than 30 years of teaching seed, gardeners how to save seeds. And then that was formally rolled into the six-day seed school, which was then distilled down to a one-day seed school, which is now uh, encapsulated in seed school online. So it's got a, it's had a lot of feedback. It's uh, rounded off at the edges and it's really, you know, more and more. People come up to me every day and say, hey, I did Seed School Online, and it really, really helped. I can't help but thank you that it's helping. Gosh, 82 seed libraries have signed up on their own on our network. I'm still blown away by that. Nice, nice, nice. We also have a free webinar called Seed Saving Hacked. You can find that at SeedSavingHacked.com. Where do people find out more about the summit that's coming up, Bill? Uh, Rocky Mountain Seeds. Dot org. Perfect. Um, and do it, do it now. I think it's we're a month out. The last one's sold out, and we'd hate to turn you away. Perfect. You know, if you're interested at all, if you're right to us, if you have problems getting here, if you know, whatever, we're our our major goal in our little nonprofit is to grow this network and to educate it. And so, if we can help get you to the summit then we're doing our job because you'll get, you'll learn more in two days and connect with more people that are more important that are doing this than you could. Well, there is no other place like this that I know of. It's really a a unique and wonderful thing. This year you'll get to hear Charles Eisenstein. If you've uh, been following his work, um, the gift economy, you know, about how we can shift our whole way of thinking, which is so much a part of what seed saving is. Yeah. Anyway, Rowan White from Sierra Seed uh, Co-op is going to be there. She's Mohawk and is going to help us stand in two different worlds as we become seed savers. One, a more spiritual and historical one on one side and a practical and scientific one on the other. And she does such a wonderful job Excellent. of helping us bridge those two worlds. So those Perfect. are just some of the things that are coming. Yeah. What, what are the dates of it again? The dates are field trip Thursday, February 21st, uh, summit Friday, February 22nd, and February 23rd. Excellent. Excellent. More information at RockyMountainSeeds.org. Thank you very much 
for joining me this evening, Bill. Hey, thanks, Greg. It's been, it's a pleasure as always, and I really enjoyed your story. I mean, that's a powerful story. Yeah. I'm going to uh, make sure that all my fruit trees have uh, uh, have your, have um, Greg's guild underneath it. <laughs> nice. From nice. now on. All right. Thank you, everybody, for joining us, and we will catch you on the flip side, and see you next month. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.